Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. I don't know about you, but I want to live my greatest life in a lean, healthy, and muscular body. If that sounds exciting to you, or if that sounds like it's in alignment with your goals, you're going to love this podcast. So over the last five years, I've been the one preaching, train well, train intelligently, and at the same time, understand all the external variables that go into allowing you to go into the gym and perform at your best. So most people who are coaches out there tend to focus on one or two things myopically and say, hey, this is the most important. And sometimes a nutritionist will say, hey, nutrition is the most important. And sometimes a trainer will say training is the most important. But the reality is, which one is most important to you right now can be different based on person to person and month to month. Year to year, it changes based on your limiting factors. Today's guest is a previous guest who I am so excited to welcome back, Joel Jamison. Joel has just launched a new course called Recover to Win. Everything that goes into recovery, and we're going to dive into it today. So we talk about things like heart rate variability, which you've heard me talk about before. We talk about sleep. We talk about how to match training and nutrition to optimize performance and recovery and recoverability. We talk a little bit about stress management, mindset, and all of the other biohacking slash modalities that go into optimizing recovery so you can perform and ultimately feel your best, whether it be in the gym or outside the gym. You're going to absolutely love this podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Grass-Fed Liver and Bone Marrow by Ancestral Supplements. Ancestral Supplements makes New Zealand source nose-to-tail organ meats, liver, and bone marrow in a simple and convenient gelatin capsule. Getting in organ meats is an imperative part of optimized health and performance, especially if you eat a lot of muscle meat. Typically in our culture, organ meats are not something that is a prized part of our nutrition. However, we know that organ meats provide incredibly bioavailable sources of vitamin A, choline, folate, B12, copper, iron, and fat-soluble activators that are absent in the modern diet. This is nourishment that is known to support methylation and ultimately fundamental health. And I highly suggest that every one of my clients and every one of my listeners consume some type of organ meat. And I love Ancestral and I've been using it for a while now because they actually provide it in really simple to consume varieties of organ meats. I typically consume liver, I consume kidney, and sometimes I consume a blend of all of the organ meats and allows me to get it in a simple and easy to consume way that ultimately allows me to not have to cook organ meats. And I do sometimes cook organ meats because you know Belcampo is also an incredible sponsor of this podcast, but Ancestral is a brand new sponsor of the podcast. We want to support Ancestral and ultimately support your health. Thank you so much to Ancestral for being a part of the muscle intelligence community and supporting our journey to live a great life in a body that we absolutely love so we can be lean, healthy, and muscular for life. Go to ancestralsupplements.com and use the code BEN to get 10% off. And this discount also applies on US Amazon, which is awesome. Thank you so much. Enjoy the podcast. And we are live with Joel Jamison. What's up, my man? Not much. How are you doing? Good to talk to you again. It's so great. So great to have you show us Morpheus, your new tech that is launching to help coaches uh, integrate all the data from all these wearables and ultimately have a platform to understand it. We can get into that a little bit. And you've also also launched a course, Recovered Win. I'm, I'm super excited to hear all about that. Um, let's just jump into the course, man. So tell us why you created it. 
Uh, everyone knows you from the podcast in the past, having talked about heart rate variability, recoverability, energy systems. Um, so why is Recover to Win your newest baby? Yeah, you know, it's something I've been working on for a long time just because I saw such a need for, for coaches to extend their coaching beyond the walls of the gym. Um, you know, I think we've spent a lot of time learning sets and reps and exercises and methods, and those things have been covered, you know, millions of times and lots of people talk about it. Uh, but but the reality is if, if you're not coaching some of the other big pieces, if you're not coaching people to improve their sleep, if you're not coaching them to understand the big picture of recovery, if you're not looking about uh, you know activity and regeneration strategies, all those pieces matter in terms of helping people improve their fitness and, and achieve their goals. And the education just hasn't been there for, for the coaches or for the clients themselves. There just hasn't been an organized, structured way to approach recovery in a way that's meaningful and valuable. So uh, I, I built it to, to serve that need, to serve that purpose and to help people understand how do I help someone improve their sleep from a coach? Or if I'm a client, how do I go about improving my sleep? How do I know how active I should be? How many steps a day are right for me? Is 10,000 right or is that just a made up number? Uh, you know, how does nutrition play a role in recovery? So I really just want to help people understand the big peak, big picture these questions. And so recover to win was, was my answer to that. So walk through like high level overview of the course. And, and you know, you mentioned something like recoverability, you know, heart rate variability is obviously a thing, but uh, is, is it effectively just walking through strategies, you know, kind of silo by silo, whether it be nutrition or recovery strategies to help people improve recoverability for performance? Yeah. So I have five big pieces uh, of recovery wins. So I have move, train, eat, sleep, and regenerate. And those are really the five big pillars of recovery in my mind, because those are the five things that drive it. So Bill recovered a win to go through each one of those pillars, you know, movement, how active should be, should I be? Is the right amount of steps for me 10,000, 20,000, 5,000? Like how many steps should I be going? You know, training, what sort of intensities are appropriate? How do I manage those intensities based on my recovery? Uh, sleeping, how does my sleep affect my recovery? How do I improve my sleep? What, what defines good sleep? Uh, nutrition, you know, what do I eat? How do I eat it? How do those things play a role? And then regeneration. So I walk through each of those pillars so people understand how they work, uh, how to improve, how to assess them, how to evaluate whether or not you have a problem in that area. And then the last module is building a recovery roadmap. And so that's really the process of figuring out what it is that I need to improve the most in my recovery and my lifestyle to get better fitness. And so I attack it the same way as training. You know, I don't just say, oh, we're going to improve every area of fitness at once. I figure out, okay, well, here's the area of fitness that I think is going to help you the most get to where you want to go. And it's the same thing with recovery. And I really want to help people look at recovery from that standpoint of a plan, a strategy versus just a bunch of things that you do. And so the idea is that I want to develop this process where I evaluate my recovery in these different areas of my lifestyle. I figure out where are my biggest limitations, whether that's nutritional or sleep or the training side or whatever the case may be. And then I come up with an actual plan to, to address it and to fix it, to improve my sleep or to improve my nutrition or to manage my intensity more effectively or to get better at managing mental stress. And then you track it. You use the data, you use the technology to see and make sure that you are achieving those positive changes and it is having the impact that you want it to have. So, you know, again, people think about building a training program. They think about exercises and sets and reps and they, they have a goal and they work towards and they see if they're improving. But recovery has gotten more attention recently, but it's always been like, go try cryo or go get a massage or try these supplements. Like, not that they're, not that they're bad, uh, right. but, you, but it needs to be more of a framework. It needs to have more context and more of a system behind it. And that's really the way I've approached recovery is just that same process of training, but on the recovery side and attacking weak links and minimizing things that are keeping you from reaching your goals. And that's the framework that I built it on. 
Yeah, it's effectively throw shit at the wall and see what sticks, right? And yeah, like, hope, hope something works, right? <laughs> right. I mean, and, and, yeah. Yeah, and as far as your approach, you know, that's exactly what I do. It's like, what's the elephant in the room? What's the big glaring weakness in, in your armor? Yep. Let's make that better first. And then I say, like, pull that lever first, and people will notice such a drastic improvement in their ability to recover and perform um, that it's just, you know, it's almost like a no-brainer. And it, no coaches really take that approach, it seems, and I'm glad that you're doing this because, you know, people are always trying to scale volume and they're trying to scale intensity and they're trying to scale workload and work capacity without, you know, kind of concurrently scaling recover, recovery modalities as well. And nobody's emphasizing that as, as maybe the greatest opportunity to progress. It is. Pe- I mean, yeah. why do, I mean, and we don't have to go this whole rabbit hole, but why do people use performance enhancing drugs? I mean, scale they use recovery. them to, to scale yeah. recovery. I mean, that's literally what it, those, the drugs primarily allow you to create a bigger training effect through greater stress. And then they, facilitate much greater recovery. I mean, I've used, yep. I've seen people use drugs and their, and their HRV goes through the roof because their body is just highly anabolic and it's highly in this recovery state all the time. So obviously we can't, we can't have the exact same effects, but it's, a, it's just this principle of people to understand that scaling up recovery does in many, most cases, scale up results. It's, it's yep. just as important to scale up intensity. And to your point, you can't scale up intensity without also scaling up recovery because intensity causes the need for more recovery. So if you don't do any address it, you just get this, this, this yo-yo system that people go through of, I, I see some results, I stop seeing results. I do more intensity, I see a little more results. I scale up intensity and sooner or later, I hit a plateau and maybe I get injured. So it's just this, this recurring cycle that people need to break. And the way you break it is by matching the, the gains of intensity and volume with improvements in your recovery at the same time. Yeah, it's one of the things I teach my coaches is like, what are all the levers you could possibly pull to improve recovery? Just list them, like put them all on a piece of paper and go, okay, well, which ones for that particular client are are feasible, are useful, and are likely to be retained over time or adhered to over time? Yep. And, you know, that in and of itself is is the foundation of it all. So it's just listing them in this high level way and, okay, which one of these seems like it'll actually move the needle the most for this particular person? So let's walk, let's, let's go through movement, Joel, and, and how you... Uh, start, you know, kind of maybe maybe qualifying movement before you quantify it, right? Because, sure. you know, 20,000 steps, uh, you know, walking around the house while, you know, going to the fridge is not the same as 20,000 steps out climbing a mountain. So is there a way that you suggest people kind of conceptualize movement in general? Yeah. So, I mean, there's two pieces to it. We can, we can look just overall movement quality, which is its own animal, right? You can evaluate how well people are moving. If they have big limitations, they're going to cause more stress. They repeat them over a thousand times a day, right? And then you can look at just the overall amount. And a lot of it, to be honest, it comes down to just energy. It literally just kind of comes down to the amount of calories you expend in a day. Yep. And of course, climbing a mountain is going to be different than walking, but at the same point in time, you're going to burn a whole lot more calories climbing a mountain. And that's going to differentiate walking aside from the intensity level. So we just have to understand that the metabolism can only create so much energy in a day. And the biggest piece of that is just our activity. And if we, if we do go 20,000 steps up a mountain, that's going to burn a tremendous amount of energy. And then the question is, is there enough left over for the recovery piece? So we just have to understand how many total calories should we be targeting in a day to burn? And you know, that generally will fall into a step range, but it depends like you like said on the activity. So the first thing I do is you can take about two and a half times your basic metabolic rate. If you've ever had a metabolic test done, or you use what's called the Miffler St. Jor equation, you can kind of use ways to estimate uh, roughly where your, your metabolic ceiling is. And that's somewhere around two and a half times that number. What that means is if I consistently exceed that number of calories expended on a day, chances are I'm not going to have enough left, left over for recovery because my metabolism can't create more than that on average. So if my rest of metabolic rate, like let's say it takes me roughly a thousand calories to just stay alive, about 2,500 calories a day is what I'm going to be able to burn consistently or produce consistently on a daily basis. If I start going over that consistently, 
I'm going to start to see negative things happen. So you always, you, you, you do take intensity into account, obviously, but that's, you know, intensity also will drive higher calories anyway. So, you know, I start there, just understand the big picture of energy production, metabolism, and I figure out what someone's metabolic ceiling is. And I use that as a guideline to help them understand how much activity is or is not appropriate on a given day. And then beyond that, you look at the quality side as well. So there's kind of two sides of this coin that I want to approach is like, there's, there's the performance side and there's the fat loss side. And you yep. said, you know, if I can only um, produce two and a half times my basal metabolic rate and energy per day, would that be an appropriate level for someone who's trying to lose fat to actually start to try, try to hit, right? Like, do I want to be slightly over that two and a half times a day to allow myself to, to know that I'm actually, there's no way that I'm not going to burn fat or is that simply too much? I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously you have to create caloric deficit. There's two ways to do it, right? You, you eat less or you move more and probably some combination thereof. So you can definitely increase activity uh, and, and obviously burn more fat up to a point, but then it kind of comes back to the calorie equation too. So you can do it both ways uh, and both have their pluses and minuses. So if you're if you're super highly active and you're, you, know, you are going consistently above that threshold, then you are going to have a greater impact on your recovery than if you stay around that threshold and just create the deficit through, you know, nutritional uh, deficit. So I think for, you know, it depends on the level of body fat loss you're talking about. You can definitely exceed that for a while, but then I think you do want to come back down that number as well too. So you, if you do consistently exceed that number by a large, large amount, that's where we do see the research showing immune system compromise. Uh, you see your loss of sex drive. You see all the negative things that we see when the deficit's too big. Basically, it doesn't matter what your deficit is if that's, you know, going to be end result. So you have to be just mindful of that number. And I think you can exceed it for times but I wouldn't have anybody say, you know, go three times your basic metabolic rate to maximize fat loss. But I think you're going to have a, a cost of diminishing return there. Do you think that, um, so you say two and a half times is your body's maximum ability to produce energy. Do you think that would be then the ceiling of calories we should be uh, inputting without uh, you know, going over to, because obviously if we're going over the amount our body can produce, it's maybe likely to be stored as fat. I'm curious what your thought is. There. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's basically that we, it's not that we can't ever do that. So we can't do that over a long time. period of time, over time. So you can definitely exceed that number for, I mean, you go run a marathon, you're burning more than that, or you, hmm. you go climb a mountain and I mean, you are burning more than that. It's, it's been shown essentially that over the, over the course of days, weeks, and months, you're, you can't exceed that consistently. Like your, your body kind of always adapts back to that, that number in terms of how many calories you can produce. And the, the, the interesting thing is the reason that it does that, they think, and this is, this is some research um, out of where they, they went down and measured a lot of the African hunter-gatherer tribes. They measured different endurance events. They just kind of looked at what are, what are our bodies capable in terms of metabolism? Because the reality is it takes time to turn that apple into calories. And it takes energy to turn the apple into calories. It takes energy to make energy. And so there's just limitations in how fast that can happen and how much you can do in that 24-hour period on average over time. And so if you start to uh, you know, exceed that, and it doesn't really matter what your caloric intake is, you would ultimately just be burning down, you would be drawing down your fat stores and your glycogen stores. So they think that it's a metabolic ceiling because it, it's a hard stop for our body to be able to avoid eating itself more or less. So the, the idea would be if, if I consistently burns, you know, five times my BMR, it, it wouldn't matter how much calories I ate, I would still be drawing down fat and muscle and ultimate glycogen and everything else. I'd be depleting myself into the ground if I could consistently burn more than that. So there's that kind of hard stop of around two and a half times is what our body uses to protect itself uh, in terms of making sure we, have, we can survive and not just, you basically train yourself to death no matter how much you ate 
is my point, if they didn't yeah. have that hard limit, right. right? Yeah. So what would be the, the kind of core tenets you would teach a coach as far as establishing base level or, or, or you know, performance level movement in someone? So look, I think everyone kind of has their way of approaching movement screens. So there's there's lots of different paths, but you just want to make sure people have good movement competency and you know the core movements of pushing, pulling, lunging, squatting, rotating, those sorts of things. And then the biggest thing I would say is if, if you can't move well in some of these basic movement patterns, and then you do go 10, 15, 20,000 steps a day, you work out, that's where you get just exacerbated levels of stress. Yeah. And you'll see that in HRV, right? You'll see somebody who generally moves pretty well, has good soft tissue quality, has just good movement capacity they'll recover a whole lot faster than somebody who doesn't because they're just placing more and more stress themselves the more they move. So you want to develop those, those movement qualities in line with managing their overall movement uh, activity level so that you are again managing their overall level of stress. And I've seen that tons of times, like if someone's squat pattern is really bad and you put them through a squat workout, they're going to be a lot worse off the next day than someone whose squat pattern was really good. So it's, it's a moving target. It's the same thing. It's you always been working to improve them because the, the worse your movement is, the more stress it is on your body, the slower your recovery becomes. It's that simple. You know, man, you're you're the only person I've ever heard talk about that. And that's such an amazing thing that needs to just be driven home to people. It's like the, the value of high level movement quality and its ability to to ultimately decrease the, the internal stress placed on the system. I think people don't conceptualize that. Most people just go to the gym and go, hey, man, just, just bite down and work hard. And that just, to me, that's just the stupidest thing in the world. Like, no, it's like it's quality has to come before quantity and people just don't see that. And you're literally the first person I've ever heard say that. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it. Right. So you yeah. have someone come with, you have, you have, you have someone come in the gym and their movement sucks and I'll look at their HRV the next day and I'll look at the big picture. You can see that that level of workout, even though it wasn't maybe that higher intensity or volume, it just trashed them because their body's so uncoordinated in those movement patterns. It creates so much stress and where it's not designed to be that the body has to have so much more time devoted to the re repair process because it just it stressed a bunch of tissues that probably weren't designed for that stress. And so it just slows the entire thing down tremendously versus you take, I mean, honestly, I think this is the big thing of, the first thing I'll say, I noticed this a long time ago, I went to the training camp with Seahawks really early on and I'd measure HRV and I'd watch them go out and train the first session and I'd look at it again. Sometimes it looked better. Like sometimes it literally like that first morning session was almost like a recovery stimulated session than anything else where somebody else would have just crushed them because a they have good work capacity and they're, they're athletes but their movement quality is so good they're able to play four quarters in a game because they're able to be so efficient in their movement and it's so much less stress on them than it would be on the average person so i saw that really early on at like a high level athlete just how much different they were than the non-athlete it was just a stark contrast people always say what's the difference between high level athletes like their work capacity their movement their recoverability is just so high above the average person that they can tolerate you know, a season or a game in the way that the average person never could. And a lot of that just came back to, I saw that over and over again, really good quality movement led to much faster recovery. And then I just saw that same thing across the general population clients I would see and the people that generally speaking had really bad movement quality. If you overload, that's the other thing is, if someone's got bad movement qualities and you overload them, you're, you know, you're just slowing their recovery down so, so much right. that you're better, you're better off spending time improving the movement before you load them up more because they're, they're going to take three, four days to recover from something versus their movement, you know, can, can cut that down dramatically. So yeah. I just saw it, you know, the issue yeah, that, to me. that seems to be a massive role of strength and conditioning coaches and therapists in professional sports is like, you don't necessarily have to make them better. Maybe you do, but you're making their movement quality better. Right. So it's just like their, their primary focus is how do we improve these foundational movements? How do we make sure they're moving well? Are they getting the right type of soft tissue work, the right mobility work, stability work so that their body can do what it's meant to do. So it's just this foundational stuff that, 
I see pro athletes doing daily that yeah. the average gym rat just sends to neglect, right? They just go, I'm just going to go in and, 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 and squat heavy today. Or I'm going to bench heavy today with absolutely no regard for those foundational movements. And, you know, even things as simple as, as breathing mechanics, as walking mechanics, like I preach this, you know, to the nth degree, like if you can't do these things well, don't do anything else. Just like focus on those first because everything yeah. that stacks on top of those is dysfunctional. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It really does come down to the foundation. And I think that the problem is, you know, you grow up in fitness and you grow up in magazines, you go on online forums. It's about sets. It's about how much weight you can lift, how many, how many pounds you can squat, what's your bench, you know, that's kind of how we pride ourselves in the fitness world. Like that's our badge of honor is like, I can squat 500 pounds. You might look like shit doing it, uh, but you still throw up that number. You put a picture on Instagram of you squatting 500 pounds. So I think we've just kind of, it, it lends itself to, you know, the, the look at me approach, you know, to, to see yourself squatting as much as you can or lifting as much as you can. But, it, you know, the problem is if you are lifting that weight with poor mechanics, you know, you end up like a lot of the old powerlifters, which, you know, I respect their 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 work ethic. But a lot of powerlifters, you, you see them these days, like they can barely move. I mean, mm-hmm. they're beat. They're just broken and beat to shit. You know, all those guys. And maybe they were willing to pay that price. That's their own their own decision. Uh, but I think your average person going to the gym doesn't really want to pay that price. They they do actually want to feel better. They do want to live longer. They want to be healthier. But the way that they're approaching their training is not necessarily supporting that because they're building on a foundation of really heavy, poor movements and you know really high intensity, poor conditioning. Same thing. Yeah, I know this isn't really the focus of today's chat, but I, I'm curious about maybe your um, maybe weighting of is it just like minimum effective dose to make sure they're having the, the proper movement patterns? Is that how you weigh like how much to do? Because I'm sure the audience is like, well, how do I balance you know the the acquisition of the skill and yeah. output? And I'm yeah, curious. It's, yeah, it's, it is. It's, min- it's two things. I would say it's minimum effective dose. And it's it's retargeting your framing to do as much as I can with good movement versus just as much as I can. And uh, so a lot of times, a lot of times that you're coaching, I think that, that's the other thing about coaching. I would say is coaching has been very ingrained to push, push intensity, push effort, right? Like as I'm, if I see somebody starting to get tired, most coaches natural reaction will be like, all right, come on, keep going. Let's go. Let's go. So they, they, they revert to this motivation tactic of just do more. And that's kind of how they're driving their clients to think like, just do more. The answer is do more. I'm supposed to do more. It's, it's a very natural part of coaching, but not to say that, you know, motivation that level is not matter. doesn't matter. It does, but I've always focused on, Focusing on the technique angle of things as people fatigue. Focus on keep your posture where it needs to be. Keep your breathing mechanics where they need to be. Coaching as people get tired, it's not just do more, it's do better, right? It's it's move better as you get tired. And that's been a big part of how I've approached combat athlete sports over the years is you see people in combat sports get tired and then they swing to the fences and they gas out even more and they get knocked out or they get choked mm-hmm. out or whatever. The reality is when you're tired, the worst thing you could possibly do is let your technique go to hell and just swing to the fences because that's when you're most likely to lose. So we just have to rethink, uh, I think, coaching and what our goal is in, you know, in a session. It's, it's not that you know, intensity doesn't matter or, or those things don't. Because they matter, but if they're coming at the expense of your technique and they're coming at the expense of stressing your body way beyond its limits, then it's not more beneficial. It's less beneficial. So we just need to think the goal is to move as much as we can with good movement technique. As soon as we start to lose that, as soon as your technique starts to completely fall apart, as soon as you feel yourself not being able to move well, like cut the set short. Uh, use your heart rate. As soon as your heart rate's taking five minutes to come back down, you're probably gassed. You probably don't need to do the extra set or the extra uh, high-intensity part. You can use heart rate, too, as a guide of how much stress your body's under. Heart rate recovery is a really good measure of that. Maybe not necessarily as much for strength exercises, but for conditioning-type exercises. Uh, you know, If you see heart rate coming down relatively quickly, your body's recovering well, and you're, you're not placing yourself under too much stress. But when we start seeing 
the heart rate taking, you know, two, three, four minutes to recover, it's, it's a sign that you're putting your body under a stress. And if you keep doing that, your recovery is just going to continue to slow down. So there's, there's a subjective measures of looking at people's recovery and, you know, making our sorry movement and making sure they're where they should be. And then you can use some objective measures like heart rate to help reinforce that as well. This is one of the things I loved about your course eight weeks out. You, you almost delineated between learning a skill when you're fresh and then learning a skill when you're fatigued as two yep. separate things. And I thought that was brilliant. It's like, yeah, doing something when you're fresh is one thing, but once you start to reach that level of fatigue, you have to almost like lock in deeper and deeper as far as like your ability to maintain that skill. And once you can't, the set's yeah, over. Exactly. I mean, yeah. like everyone knows there's a difference between a bodyweight squat and, you know, a 500 pound squat. Those yeah. are, those are very different things. Right. Yeah. And we can look at that as just a spectrum of how the body's solving different movement tasks. To squat with no load is, you know, reasonably straightforward. To squat with 500 pounds, there's just a whole lot more that comes into play because there's more force involved. And it's the same thing with fatigue. You know, to do a movement non-fatigue or to do a skill when you're not fatigued is one thing. But as you fatigue, you basically what you're doing is you're dropping out motor units, right? I mean, that's what fatigue is. It means less muscles able to contract because that muscle is not firing anymore. And so that skill becomes different because that skill becomes something I'm trying to achieve with less muscle available to me and less respiratory capacity available to me, less oxygen available to me. So the skill, you know, it's not an entirely different skill per se, but it's a different execution of that skill. It's a different environment to, to do that skill in. And if you look at like military people, you know, if you can sit there and shoot a target all day long, and you hit the bullseye, great. But can you go ruck up a mountain with a big sack on your back and then, and then hit the target in the middle yeah. of that? I mean, those are different things. Just because you can fire the gun when you're fresh doesn't mean you can fire the gun at a moving target or at when someone's shooting back at you, right? I can hit a, I can hit a bag all day long, but can I hit a person as they're swinging at me? Like there's just different, different execution levels of skills and fatigue is a very uh, important variable that changes our skill. And if our goal is to get better in those fatigue states and those stress states, we have to train that skill in that state. And again, I think that's where coaching breaks down a lot of times is rather than using fatigue as a chance to coach to help someone get better, we just use fatigue as a chance to make somebody work harder because we think that's the goal. The goal is not really just work as hard as you can. It should be to, to develop and refine your movement and your skills, particularly if you're an athlete, to make sure you can still accomplish the goal even as you tire, get tired versus you know just go harder as you get tired. Those are two different goals. Yeah. So shifting to nutrition a little bit, and this is a question I've been meaning to ask you for a long time. Um, you know, if we're training in any particular variable amount of uh, variable way, we have, you know, multiple systems that get taxed when we're training where the nervous system is getting taxed, the muscular system is getting taxed, the energy systems are getting taxed. And I'm curious how you approach different training modalities with um, nutrition interventions. Meaning if I'm doing something that's very neurologically taxing, you know, as compared to something that's very muscular taxing, as compared to something that's very energetically taxing, do those require different nutritional interventions that from your experience? Uh, yeah, look, something that's more metabolically taxing, let's say I do a, I don't know, a 90 minute or two hour thing. The stress is, is glycogen depletion. The stress is hydration. The stress is electrolyte balance. So there's there's more stress in different metabolic areas that you want to make sure nutritionally get met. So you want to make sure your glycogen gets refilled before the next session. You want to make sure your electrolytes get balanced correctly. You want to make sure hydration doesn't become a problem, you know, versus a very heavy set of, you know, squats where you might do 10 heavy squats in an hour, you know, some powerlifters doing that. That's a very different thing. Neurologically, you're depleting the neurotransmitters. You're depleting some of the hormones uh, rapidly. So you're depleting, you're basically just depleting things different in the body based on, that type of stress. And so, yeah, obviously calories always matter, but what am I depleting? That's the biggest question. And a power lifter is not really depleting glycogen, a series of one rep maxes, they're depleting their CNS. 
Right. And so it's it's using nutritionally to nutrition to help replenish that and make sure not to, you know they're not depleted a bunch of neurotransmitters versus you know an endurance athlete that's spending two hours in a pretty depleted state you know running consistently. So you just take you just take that approach of what am I what am I depleting? Like what is being hit the hardest here? What needs to be replenished, or what do I need to minimize from being replenished? And then you know you'll take take a different nutritional approach based on what those things are. So if someone's neurologically taxing their body, what type of intervention would you be looking at? Is it like amino acids to make sure they have the substrate to build those neurotransmitters? Yeah, amino acids for sure. Um, choline becomes a really big one. There's some of the new topics we've talked about that can really help with with powerlifters or just, I mean anything that's super neurologically demanding. Mm-hmm. It's making sure that the brain essentially has nutrition it needs versus the muscular system, which is going to have, and the, the metabolic system, which will have a bigger need of, you know, like said, electrolytes and some of the, the B vitamins and all those things involved in energy production but yeah neurotransmitter uh you know choline there's all sorts of brain supplements you know i've talked about before that you can that you can use to facilitate that that make, make a big difference and you kind of go up that ladder there's there's varying degrees of uh you know nootropics you can play in there so I've, I've, i'd say try it all but choline is one of those ones and and essential amino acids and different different types of cocktails there are probably the best place to start cool um any considerations around central fatigue versus peripheral fatigue uh, look, I'm not saying that's an overrated topic. It, it matters, but you're going to always have fatigue on both. And it kind of comes back to central fatigue is more neuromuscular, inter- neur- neural and you know, peripheral fatigue is more metabolic just naturally. So there's not, you know, I would say it just comes back to that angle of things of CNS versus muscular endurance type things. And you just play, you know, play up like we just talked about. I don't know that there's massive differences from, from just the CNS versus the metabolic load. Right. So if you see someone who's, you know, putting in the hours, they're putting in the training, the movement quality is there. They've gone through a phase of establishing, you know, great movement quality, but you're starting to see their recoverability and HRV trending down. What is the typical like order of operations as far as intervention? Does it have to be individualized person to person based on what you think the limitations are? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you have to look at the lifestyle factors first. So, you, you know, the biggest thing is as coaches or as people, you know what your training is, you know how what, the, what it looks like, but you have to solve the question of already sleeping. Sleep is the number one thing, I would say. Uh, the thing, you have to make sure that's dialed in first. I don't care what your training is. If your sleep is not there, that's the first thing you have to fix because it'll be the limiting factor. Why? Because when you are sleeping, you're the most anabolic. It's, it's that simple. I mean, that's what sleep is largely is repair, recovery, regeneration. So you, you have to build your recovery on a foundation of sleep. So I always start with that and then I'll go to diet. Not that diets, you know, you can say they're both equally important to some extent because diet's also the other big limiting factor. And then you go to mental stress. What are their mental stress levels? How much of the stress are they under? How, do they know how to talk, do they know how to deal with mental stress? Do they have a strategy in place? Are they good at it? Those sorts of things. And then you kind of come back full circle to the training and you figure out what their what those other areas can support as far as training. So if their HRV is going down, you know, is it just their training is is it increasing at the level of their recovery can't keep up with? And if so, what are the things that I can improve? You know, we talked about earlier, the, the, what, are, what can I improve the easiest to have the biggest impact? So it's minimum effective dose, or I call it like the cost benefit. Like what's something easy I can improve that's going to have the most benefit? Like don't take the path of greatest resistance, take the path of least resistance. Like if your sleep, if your sleep is the problem and your room is bright, like put some shades up, put some blackout blinds, like put some curtains on, like that'll cost you 50 bucks and ship to Home Depot. And it can have a noticeable impact on your sleep. That's not a super difficult intervention to make. There's a lot of little things like that that you can look for as people's HRV or, or the recovery starts to slide. Like what's the cause and what are the easiest ways to, to make a big impact quickly? Very cool. I think a lot of people are looking for nutritional interventions to uh, expedite 
recovery. And first, I'd like to have you talk about how much, you know, and we kind of mentioned it, but how much of a role do you think um, calories play? So obviously, it's, it's a huge you know, window, I guess, if someone's at a huge caloric deficit, it's going to play a huge role. Um, you know, if someone's eating somewhere in around, you know, their basal metabolic rate or, or their total daily expenditure, um, you know, increasing the calories by 10% versus increasing them by 20% versus 30%. Do you have a kind of strategy you usually take to, um, you know, approach recoverability? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of the same thing. I look at the other areas, like what are the areas that might be holding them back? So calories, as you mentioned, is the first thing. If you're not getting enough calories, you're in a deficit, and that means your body has to pull energy from its its own stores, which is it's going to slow down recovery. There's just no way around that. So you have to look at overall caloric expense or overall caloric intake first. You have to look at food quality, where are those calories actually coming from. You have to look at nutrient timing. You know where are their calories being distributed throughout the day, and where are insulin sensitivities and all those sorts of things. And you can kind of just pick those things off. Like, are they getting enough calories? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, you know, what is their overall food quality like? Are they, are they eating quality foods or eating shitty foods? Okay, if they're eating shitty foods, let's fix that. Okay, they're great. They're eating good foods. What's their nutrient timing look like? And you just kind of go down this step-by-step process of the most important things, and you start dialing back. Like, a lot of times, it's something obvious. Like, how many, how many st- oh, the b- biggest thing I'll tell you is stimulants. Uh, that's probably the one area I see people make the biggest mistake with is they live on caffeine. They live on coffee. They live on Red Bull. They live on something that is a sympathetically driven stimulant. And that's going to slow down your recovery because you're taking energy into the sympathetic or you're taking, creating energy sympathetically and you're not recovering parasympathetically and putting energy back in. So I just kind of go down this laundry list of calories, food quality, you know, stimulants, supplements, those sorts of things. And again, see what I can find that may be an obvious thing to improve. And it's just a matter of process of elimination. Then I think you can really go, if you start to see all those things look good and they're still not recovering, that's where you can go down the blood test route. You know, I think that's where you can get a metabolic panels. You can get a nutrient panels. You can, you know, either, either find a doctor or naturopath or somebody who's progressive and you can, and can really start to dig into hormone levels and get nutrient status and immune markers. And you can really kind of go down that, that rabbit hole of finding the things that metabolically that are keeping you from recovering and you can spend the time and the money to invest in that. But my experience tells me a lot of people have easier places to start uh, than to get there. You know, there's definitely something that's been ongoing. You haven't been able to solve. You feel like your diet's where it should be. You feel like you're doing the right thing. You're training the right way. And you're still not recovering. You know, that's when I think you want to go down some of these deeper rabbit holes of, of getting these panels done and figuring out the solution there. Cause you can sometimes pinpoint something that you didn't know. Maybe you're eating something you were sensitive to, uh, maybe you have some deficiency in some B vitamins or some sort of absorption. Like you can find all these things with these panels and you dig into it. But a lot of times people can just figure it out much easier by kind of walking themselves the how many calories am I getting? How much, what, what's my food quality? What does my nutrient timing look like? All those sorts of things can usually paint the picture first. And then, you know, if you have to go further down the rabbit hole, you want to, you can. Got it. Talk to me about food quality, Joel. You mentioned, you know, how much quality matters. I'm curious how you kind of define that. Yeah, just where the food's coming from, right? Like, what are the sources of it? And I think we all know that, you know, healthy, homegrown fruits and vegetables can be better than stuff you're going to buy in the store. I mean, there's no question if you have any sort of food sourcing of where your food's actually coming from, that's that's valuable. What are the what are the other ingredients put in there? Is it highly processed? I mean, you can kind of just use a general thumb. If it comes out of a can with a lot of preservatives and a lot of chemicals you can't pronounce, it's probably lower food quality than if it's right. a whole food so, coming so from the source. The reason I ask that is because there's this huge camp, as you know, of like, 
macros. It's like the only thing that matters is macros, hit your macros. So I want to know what you define as, you know, things that you maybe should avoid. Do you have a list of things you should do? Or do you have like a framework of like, hey, here's how you make decisions. So rather than giving people like, hey, eat this, don't eat that. I like to give people principles. I'm like, hey, this is what I believe should guide your decision making process. So it sounds like, you know, natural whole foods, you know, I don't know if you have like a list of things you go through. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's like I said, it's fairly simple. If you if you can't read the label, you can't understand what's on the label, you probably shouldn't be eating it for the most part. So I just spent like we talked about a couple months in Hawaii, and you have very very good food out there because it comes literally from the farms on Hawaii. I'm not I wasn't yeah. eating, you know, you just aren't eating stuff out of a box. You are eating stuff out of a can. You are eating stuff that's processed a million times over before you get to. I, mean, I think we all, generally speaking, know what's relatively good quality food and what's generally not. Our our problem is. The, the less quality food is usually more convenient food, right? It's easier to get, it's cheaper. I can walk into the store and buy something versus having to go to a farmer's market or go to a place where I could get it from the farm directly. Those sorts of things are more difficult and they're more expensive. I mean, it's unfortunately it costs more money to eat good quality food than it costs to eat cheap, shitty processed food. Yep. And so you, you can just pass the little test of where it has come from and how many times it's been processed before I put it in my mouth. And if it's coming out of a can with a million preservatives and things you can't read. It's definitely not as healthy for you. It's coming from the farm. Right. So what negative effects have you seen um, from people eating poor quality foods? Eat, look, you see their HRV tank dramatically. Yeah. You, you, you see a much different profile. It's the same thing with movement. Somebody who moves really well, you see them recover faster. You see their HRV more resilient. It's the same thing with food. If somebody is eating good quality foods and they're, they're getting them, you know, from a farm or a farmer's market or growing them themselves, like, my girlfriend's family's got chickens. We eat other farm fresh eggs and we get, you can get meat from the cows and the butchers directly. Like if you find people that eat that way, you see a big difference in their recovery and their overall resilience. Just because I think it's just the body processes those things a whole lot easier. It's, it's designed to process those things a whole lot easier. And when you, when you see people make the transition, sometimes it's night and day. You'll find somebody who is always under recovered, always had poor cholesterol numbers, always struggle with weight loss. And then boom, it's like a, it's like a switch just was flipped. And all of a sudden their weight comes off easier. They feel better. Their sleep goes, uh, sleep improves. All those things can change just from making some choices that are, you know, maybe it's the same number of calories, but you're getting farm fresh eggs versus, you know, egg concentrate in a carton out of the store. I mean, it sounds like it's the same food, but the quality can be tremendously different. Yeah. Talk to me about uh, tissue quality. I know you work with a ton of high level athletes. And so, what I've seen kind of anecdotally is you have people who just seem to maintain great fluid movement. They maintain great mobility um, and they, they can sustain that even at high levels of performance. And then you have other people who it almost seems like the tissues start to become brittle. They be, start to become tight. They become uh, immobile. Um, what are your kind of maybe go-tos or interventions for, you know, checking boxes to make sure you sustain high tissue quality over time? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is depending if we're talking about athletes, actually talking about anybody, I think getting some sort of soft tissue treatment going is important. I think it's an important part of maintaining your health. So, you know, if you, if you don't have uh, you know, pro athletes budget, which most of us don't, you know, there's all sorts of self myofascial release and self massage tools available to you these days. So I use AccuMobility balls. Those are really uh, great tools, like things like the Theragun and all these little tools are popping up. Like using those things is, is valuable and, and using them on a consistent basis is valuable. If you're, constantly in pain from something like there's something wrong like you need to address those things before they become chronic you know nagging injuries become you know chronic surgery things that you need so it's just a matter of taking care of yourself and it comes back to all the things we've talked about people who sleep better people who eat better people who manage their overall stress loads better their soft tissue quality stays a lot higher because a lot of times the soft quality the soft tissue quality suffers is because it is an abundance of stress too much 
so let's think about this. If we put the tissue under a bunch of load and then we don't recover well from it, it's, it's, it's essentially putting that tissue in compromised position. It's making it more susceptible to stress of load and making it more susceptible to breaking down and more susceptible uh, to injury over time. So if we take care of all the other things and we focus on addressing the soft tissue problems and we do incorporate soft tissue therapies in, you know, in our own, own houses, our own training, like everything works together really well. It's the person who's not sleeping very well. They're stressed out of their mind. They're overtraining. They're doing too much, too much high intensity. They're eating lots of, they're drinking lots of stimulants. Their soft tissue quality suffers tremendously. So it's, it's a byproduct in my experience of all these other things put together that lead down that path because it's, you, you stress tissue. If you give it a chance to recover, the quality stays high. If you stress tissue over and over again, you don't get a chance to recover. It starts to develop scar tissue. It starts to develop poor movement qualities, which then exacerbate other areas that weren't designed for. So it's just kind of the end result of everything you're doing that dictates a lot of that stuff. And you have to be mindful of, of all of it if you really want to maintain good soft tissue quality. And to me, it's it's why you see the difference in people staying healthy versus people who are chronically injured. Like if you take someone who's chronically injured and has bad soft tissue quality, chances are they have bad movement. Chances are they're living on stimulants. Chances on their HRV is low. Chances are they don't do, don't do much conditioning. Chances are like all those things you see underlying the surface of people who are chronically injured and have bad soft tissue are just the result of everything else. How much value do you place on breathing and respiration rate as far as its implication recovery? A ton. I mean, breathing plays a ton of role in, into how we move, into how we recover, all of that. So, I mean, I've I worked a lot with Mike Roberts and Bill Hartman. I know you've worked with some other guys as well. I they're think great. They're great stuff. And there's, there's multiple ways to get there. But the bottom line is how you breathe affects everything because it's oxygen transport, it's mobility, it's all these things uh, combined. So, you know, if you're not doing anything whatsoever for breathing, I think you're missing a big piece of that, which is why I had Mike and Bill come in my course and Brian McKenzie. There's lots and lots of guys out there that are starting to make this stuff more um more at least making people more aware of it and giving people tools. So I would say it's, it's hugely important. Same thing, like people who move well tend to breathe well. People who breathe well tend to move well. Like you see these correlations because they're all related to one another. If you, if you move terrible, chances are your breathing's not very good and chances are your sleep's not very good. So it's just this, my experience, it's a big chain reaction and it's, it's putting all these things together. And again, coming back to what we talked about of what's the missing link. Well, if, I, if my movement is a big problem for me, Part of how I'm going to have to address that is going to be have to be through through breathing because probably that's part of the cause, and I'm going to have to figure out how to improve that to get my movement to where it needs to be. So it's it's just all connected together, and just figuring out what is I need to improve and what are the pieces of that that I need to personally improve to get there. Yeah, awesome. I think breathing is is you know the number one intervention behind sleep as far as imp improving people's perception to stress. Right, if I can it get is. you to decrease your heart rate. Uh, decrease your respiration rate. Typically, your perceived stress goes down. Your parasympathetic nervous system is going to kick on, exactly. allow you to have better digestion, better oxygen delivery. All these these things that just direct correlate directly correlate with performance. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, it's because fundamentally breathing is tied to both movement and the parasympathetic nervous system. So if I can tap into my parasympathetic nervous system, I'm inherently turning down that sympathetic nervous system, which is what we want to do. We we don't want to be sympathetic all day. We don't want to be uh, and constantly a state of stress all day. And the, the easiest way to break that is improving your breathing and being able to have that mental skill of relaxation. So, you know, relaxation is within. I say that the environment can change. If you can learn the skill to turn that sympathetic system off, no matter how much stress you're under, you can develop, you know, a whole lot healthier lifestyle because life is stressful. It's how you react to it that matters. Think about that. I mean, that's, to me, that's a powerful thing. I mean, you're, you're yeah. never going to get away from stress but you can change the way that you react to it. And make that, your body more resilient. Yeah, you can make your body more resilient. And that resiliency leads to greater lifespan. I mean, it's, it mm -hmm. really is that simple. I mean, lifespan comes back to how well your body deals with stress 
over the course of your life. And if it deals with stress poorly and it's under a lot of stress, you're going to die early. You're going to have cardiovascular disease. You're going to have stroke. You're going to have diabetes. You're going to have all these things that we see kill so many people. But if you can make yourself more resilient by developing that stress tolerance skill and by developing the physical tools you know, around fitness, you're going to be a whole lot long, likely to, to live longer. It's that simple. This is a subjective thing and I do, cause I don't think there's any data on it, but I'm curious your opinion. So, if I have someone who's trying to uh, push calories up, they're like, yeah, I want to recover more. I want to build muscle more. Um, just get, giving your thought around um, maybe interventions as far as, you know, should the first line of attack be like, hey, I want to actually stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system to allow your body to extrapolate more nutrients from this food versus just hammering more food in, right? So if I'm giving a cat, so I've got an athlete who's got, you know, typically eating 3,000 calories a day is not recovering. So I bump up to 3,500, is not recovering. I bump to 4,000. There's certainly some window of like, okay, we don't want to push calories anymore. We want to then maybe shift to like, we want to, we want to absorb and assimilate more. Yep. Um, so therefore maybe a, a parasympathetic intervention or two to allow your body to actually extrapolate more nutrients from the food. I'm just curious if you had any thoughts around that. Yeah, I think, well, you just got to realize taking in energy is, is energy extensive, right? Or energy intensive and Digestion is energy intensive. So just adding blanket calories in isn't always a direct path to recovery because digestion is hard on your body. It takes, it takes work to digest food. So, you know, if you are calorically, uh, I think probably the reason where that might help is if you're taking in shittier foods, maybe, maybe more uh, nutrients is required to get the recovery you need. But in general, I, I would prefer to use a parasympathetic, you know, based intervention and, and figure out why they can't turn the sympathetic system off energize than just you know feed more and more and more calories and that's not to say maybe they do need more calories they, they certainly might but i think there's that generally speaking there's there's other areas you would tackle first and if maybe those weren't working then you look at their calories and then you can bump them up it wouldn't be my first my first go-to for recovery wouldn't be like just slam five more calories than somebody uh there's, there's yeah. usually easier ways to go about it so how would you make that decision so what did you base it on hrv would you base it on subjective variables like how do you know which lever to pull look at their data and talk yeah. to them i mean kind of just coach, right? I mean, okay, yeah. let's, let's look at these different areas and see what you're doing now and see which one we think is the limiting factor. And then you make a change and you did it work. I mean, it's, that's what it comes down to. How do you feel, you know, what's improving, what's not improving. It's just a process of trial and error and educated guessing and making, you know, making the right decisions based on your coaching experience. And, and then I think you have to have a way to test it. Like, here's what I think is your problem. Let's try this and see what happens. Give it a chance to work. Did it work? Yes. Great. Keep doing it. Did it work? No. Okay. Well, let's think about this again. So it's, it's always just, it comes down to you really have two approaches. Like you said, it's throw shit in the wall and hope it sticks. Or it's like make a targeted guess based on data and based on talking to somebody and, and making uh, using your coaching knowledge and then saying, let's see what happens. Let's try it for you know seven days or 10 days or 30 days. Let's look at your HRV. Is it improving? Like how you feel? Are your numbers, you know, are numbers getting better? Are you, are you sleeping? Is your sleep improving? Is your recovery improving? Like, did it work? And if the answer is yes, great. If the answer is no, then you know, take a second stab at it versus just, let's just try everything at once. That's the other thing I think people do too much. It's like the, you know, it's like the guys who take 10 different anabolics at once. Like <laughs> you have no idea what's, what's what. So you, you have to just try one thing at a time and see if it works versus trying 10 things. Cause you don't have any idea which of those 10 things, if, you know, Oh, I'm going to do cryo and then I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. Like you can't do 10 different things in recovery and have any idea which one was actually beneficial. Yeah. So, you know, I think over time you really want to learn your own body. You know, what, what does your body respond well to? What type of foods do you absorb really well? What type of food should you avoid? Uh, what type of training strategies work really well for you? What type of recovery strategies work well for you? Those are, those are things that are, every person needs to learn for themselves. And as a coach, you can 
help them guide that path. But ultimately, everyone is different. I mean, that's what it comes down to. If some things may work great for me and terrible for you, I can't just assume that because it worked great for me, it works for you. And so yeah. I think you do have to learn that path. You have to learn those answers on your own. One thing I tend to use is just like, are you hungry? And if someone tends to be um, not hungry, I usually assume that, okay, you're probably getting enough food. It's probably something else that's interfering with your ability to recover. And if like, hey, if there's any time of the day where you're hungry, okay, that means you're probably digesting, absorbing, and assimilating most of the food you got. We probably have some room there to push it up a little bit. That's kind of a simple approach that I've taken. Yeah, it seems it to be sense. relatively effective. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. Thoughts on one last question. Maybe we got to go. One last, well, two questions, but the first one, uh, thoughts on, on cold and heat as far as interventions uh, for recovery. Uh, they can be really powerful or they can be uh, uh, detrimental. It comes down to the dose, particularly the cold. So cold is obviously uh, anti-inflammatory, which can be a good thing if you have chronic inflammation. But there's also research out there, like if you train and you go to cold bath every day, you're negating some of the benefit because you want to stimulate some of the inflammation from training because that's part of the stimulus for the body to improve. So I've seen people take it too far in the direction and just like always be trying to use cold to shut off inflammation. But again, you're, you're going to negate some of the benefits of that training. So I think in, in, in the right doses, the right times, it can be really effective. You know, if you're in a training camp or you're in season or you're just, you know, you're always stressed from life and you want to get your workouts in, you can't figure out how to, you know, manage recovery. Like you can throw some of those things in there, but it, again, it's gotta be a measured, precise, you know, prescriptive thing versus like, Oh, I'm just gonna go in a cold tub every day for 20 minutes. Like sooner or later, that, that's probably going to do more harm than good. And it's probably not the right approach. And the same thing with heat, you know, heat can have a really good stimulating circulatory effect. Uh, lots of research shows it can it can stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, but if you're living in the hot tub every single day, it'll it'll a lose its effectiveness and b probably not you know really be the best strategy. So those things you know in in the right doses, the right time, I think both can be used effectively. It's just a matter of when and how much, and that's again kind of comes down to your own physiology and using HRV or using something to to gauge that. You know if you do a, a if you do a cold plunge the next day your HRV tanked, you probably need too much of it. Uh, there's actually a cool study somebody did with cold water immersion where they used HRV using the mild biofort system as a gauge for how much and how long they should do it. And they called like customized cold water versus like generic cold water or something like that. And the customized cold water got better results, noticeably better results, significantly better. So it's just, they, they prescribed how much cold therapy to do based on their HRV and then measure the change. So it was pretty cool to see that, you know, recovery is like training. It's, it's personalized. You want to, you want to use your own, your own body to figure that out. So final question before I know you got to bounce off. Uh, tell us about Morpheus. You gave me a good 20, 30 minute demo prior to our call. It looks absolutely incredible. Uh, what is it? Where can people find it? And uh, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah. So really Morpheus is the first tool for coaches that helps them connect all the dots of lifestyle and train together in a really meaningful and valuable way. So we pulled data in from all sorts of different wearables from Fitbits, to Apple watches and Oura rings and Polar and any sort of wearable data people or device people are out there, we will pull that in along with our own Morpheus device to give people recovery, HRV, training, sleep, activity, all these different things. And then we'll help coaches basically make better decisions or help their clients make better decisions by giving them heart rate recovery zones, by showing them how their trains affecting them, all these different pieces. And then we're building communication tools. So you can chat, communicate. Really, it's just, it's coaching 2.0 in my mind. It's it's helping coaches realize that session reps and rest rest. rest intervals is just one piece of coaching it's always other things we've talked about that matter most the problem has been for most coaches as soon as you leave the gym you're a giant black box to me I, I don't know how much you're sleeping i don't know what you're doing for food quality i don't know how much mental stress you're under i don't know what you're doing i'm just kind of in the dark and you come back in the next session and i train you again and so i'm really just flying blind i'm just kind of hoping that you took care of it and chances are you didn't this is the reality of it so i think it adds a whole new layer it will add a whole new layer to coaching 
and it'll open up a lot of people's eyes into seeing that fitness is more than just the workout. Fitness is everything in between the workout as well. If you're neglecting that piece, you're just leaving results on the table and you're, you're, you're leaving people to fend for themselves. So really excited about it. Like I said, it's coming out in June. Um, they'll be able to find more at trainwithmorepiece.com as we get closer. Um, I think it's going to make a huge impact in the industry. I think the coaches, clients, gyms are just really going to see tremendous value from having access to this data, not just numbers on a page, but to me, we're, we're turning data into fitness by using that data to tell a story. And that's what it comes down to. Data tells a story of someone's life and they tell the story of someone's fitness. And, and Morpheus, to me, is the first tool that's made that story uh, you know, easy to understand and easier to improve versus just a bunch of numbers on a screen. I saw it. It looks absolutely phenomenal. I can't wait to get into the group and, and try it out myself and get all my coaching clients on it, Joel. And Recover to Win uh, is out now, right? People can yep, jump in there? Yeah, just go to eightweeksout.com, jump in courses, Recover to Win, they can sign up for it. It's a couple hundred bucks, seven hours of content. They get CUs with their coaches, walking down each of the steps we talked about. And uh, so far, the feedback has been awesome and people are starting to dig into it. I'm, I love hearing great feedback and success stories. When people start using the stuff you put out there and they, they beat right back to you and tell you the results they've seen, like, there's nothing better. So... Well, you've been uh, doing this, uh, yeah, you've been doing this a long time. You do it better than most. Uh, so thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom, buddy. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for, good, thanks for having me on. Good talk to you once again. Absolutely. That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Thank you very much for joining me here on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. The podcast world continues to grow and thrive, and there's so much competition out there. And I'm so grateful for your loyalty, for you listening to the podcast. And ultimately, I don't take that lightly. Thank you for being here. Thank you to Joel Jamison providing, for providing so much information and so much wealth and experience. Um, there's incredible amounts of value in everything he has to say. So if you didn't get it all in, I highly suggest you go back and listen to it all over again. Take notes and ultimately apply this information so you can thrive and share with at least one person you know who is trying to build a lean, healthy, and muscular body, perform at the highest level, and ultimately live their greatest life in a body they love. Thank you very much to Belcampo and Ancestral Supplements for sponsoring this podcast. Belcampo.com slash muscle will get you 20% off. Head over and support them and try all of their products, guys. They're going to love everything. There's literally not a single thing on that website that I don't love. And thank you to ancestralsupplements.com for being here and supporting this podcast, ancestralsupplements.com slash Ben, or use the code Ben to get 10% off. And uh, again, as I highly suggest that everyone, including adults and children, should be taking some amount of organ means every day. I take six capsules of liver, sometimes kidney, and sometimes their blend, literally with every meal that I'm consuming. So I hope you guys head over and take advantage of these amazing deals. And thank you for being here once again. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, go do that now on your favorite podcast provider. Thank you guys for being here. Much love, and I will see you again next time. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.